Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Farm One podcast, where we uncover local food stories, sustainable living, nutrition, plant-based recipes, and ways that we can be a little bit more thoughtful about our food. For the entire month of April for Earth Month, we are discussing topics on sustainability. Before we jump in to today's podcast, I just wanted to share some of the previous podcast episodes that we've had. Last week, we had Ashwin Gopi, a member of Rise Products. They are a company that repurposes food waste from New York City breweries and turns it into delicious and healthy ingredients. Next week, we're going to be sharing a, an episode, an interview with Benjamin Moore, the author of The Secret Life of Groceries, where we uncover the dark secrets of how food ends up in grocery stores. And following, we'll be sharing an interview with Kubi Ackerman, where we discuss food systems and food inequality. Thank you so much for joining. My name is Ina Tubaleha. I am the Chief of Staff at Farm One. And today I am joined by Rob Lang and Michael Chin. Rob, how are you doing today? I'm doing pretty well. I'm coming off, you know, a great weekend where I did a cherry pie bake-off against Gabby. And I'm really proud, proud to announce that I won. And so this week has a sort of golden cherry tinted glow to it. Um, the secret was using vodka in my pastry crust, which I think is a pretty well-known technique, but it allows you to manipulate the dough in like a wet state, but it evaporates quickly. So you get a flaky pastry. And also, I guess there were two like alcohol related things to do with the pie. I also used some cherry liqueur and soaked, um, some additional, uh, what are they? Dried sour cherries into the filling as well. So I think it gave it that extra kick that pushed it over the edge. Um, and I was proud to receive that prize, but there were, there were two outstanding pies, I have to say. And so there wasn't a lot in it. Um, but yeah, I, I'm walking around now as star baker. So pretty happy about that. What about Who you, was the judge of this competition? Oh, we had two friends, um, come over. We're all sort of vaccinated and tested and stuff if, in case anyone's worrying. Um, but we have um, some friends who just launched a card game, actually, it's called Hella Awkward. Um, and it's a card game for sort of friends to get to know each other better and uh, ask them slightly uh, difficult questions about dating and relationships and sex and uh, real talk, they say. So we were editing some footage and um, playing through that. But yeah, two independent judges, blind tasting, blind, no information was provided. And so unanimous result. Um, Gabby's taking it really well as well. So I'm really proud of her for that. Um, yeah, I got to say the perils of competition with uh, with your partner or spouse, that's a dangerous territory. Yeah, we're really competitive. Like really, we play um, NBA 2K all the time. <laughs> we compete on the Bake Off. We compete with other food products. We compete like we've we've done a running race as well so um yeah there's no limit to it but hey what about you michael um yeah generally not a good idea to compete with your partner or spouses that's my experience um but i'm glad you guys enjoyed it um weekend was good it's uh i am enjoying this transition between uh the the, the bleakness of winter into into spring and 
Um, although last week my allergies went kind of crazy. I was like, okay, is this reaction to the vaccine? Do I have COVID or just regular allergies? Um, but anyway, enough of that. It was, it was great. I really enjoyed the weekend. It was nice. Uh, weather was, was, was pretty pleasant and, uh, got a lot of stuff done. So. Nice, man. So what's on the agenda today? What are we talking about? All right. So for today's podcast episode, we are going to be discussing news on sustainability. And the first report that we have is about the perils of perception on climate change. Michael, can you share a little bit of background on this study about climate change and the perceptions about climate change? Yeah. Um, so this uh, market research firm, Ipsos Mori, um, which I guess is pretty well known, pretty, they're a large firm with a long history, um, did a study and, uh, under their perils of perception um, sort of banner. And what they did was they went into 30 markets. They did a poll of uh, a public poll in 30 markets around the world. And the idea being um, to get a sense of how uh, different uh, countries, uh, different populations and the like, uh, perceived the, uh, the, the problems with, with climate change. So it was, it was really interesting, I thought. Um, but to kick things off, uh, they have an online quiz, so you should go check it out uh, as, as somewhat of a taster, I suppose, of, of what the poll was. So I'm going to ask you guys some of these questions. Uh, which one of these actions do you think would most reduce the greenhouse gas emissions of an individual living in one of the world's richer countries. So four options, having one fewer child, replacing a normal car with a hybrid or electric car, recycling as much as possible, or having a plant-based diet. I know, what do you think? I'm gonna eliminate having one less child and recycling as much as possible. And so the other two options were um, a hybrid or an electric switching to a car or a plant-based diet. I would say, and, and, and we're assuming that I'm living in a, in a country or in a city. Uh, they say in one of the world's richer countries. In one of the world's richest, richer countries, I'm, I'm assuming that there's a reliable public transportation system. So I'm going to say, um, changing to a plant-based diet would help reduce my overall carbon footprint. All right. I'm going to select that on the quiz. You're incorrect. Having okay. one fewer child can save a massive 58 tons of CO2, whereas the most popular answer in our survey saves just 0.2 tons, and that's recycling. Uh, that's a lot. Okay, we're going to talk about this later, but on to the next question. Rob, this one's for you. Which one of the following actions do you think appears in the top 30 ways of reducing our personal climate change impact? One, not having pets, which would make life a lot less happy, in my opinion. Less packaging, fuel-efficient driving practices, buying fewer or more durable items. Uh, unfortunately, I think it's going to be not having pets. Um, so tell me, tell me I'm true. Tell me I'm right. <laughs> tell me I'm true. What is you that? You are true. 
I am true. Yeah. yeah, I was actually, it's so funny. I was talking about this yesterday with a couple of friends of mine and, and one of my friends um, has, has chosen with his wife not to have children. And, and one of the, like the jokes about it is that he's doing that to save the planet. But we also talked about pets and I, and I was trying with them to really understand the carbon impact of a pet. And we really, our assumption was that it's going to be down to mostly diet. Um, and, you know, Tyler, our dog, He's staunchly vegan. He will. He refuses to even think about eating meat, of course. Um, and so I'm thinking if the diet of a pet was actually vegan, the carbon impact may be significantly lower. But I don't know if you, if you folks can think of anything else that a pet is doing significantly to create carbon emissions since, you know, Tyler's purchasing habits are not that extravagant. You know, he doesn't do a lot of business travel. He doesn't, you know, drive a car as far as I know. He might have a secret life, but... Um, so my assumption is mostly diet, but am I wrong in that? I, I don't know if we have any data on it, but but yeah, anyway, not having a pet is a great way to reduce your carbon footprint, but also a great way to be kind of a little bit bored, I think, sometimes, you know? Sorry, Ina, you don't have a pet right now, but you're about to get one. So <laughs> I don't all, have a pet. <laughs> so all the things that you're doing to reduce your CO2 emissions are going to be thrown out the window the moment this animal comes into your life. <laughs> Michael, I'm curious, you know, what you think also about where, uh, you know, having a pet has carbon implications. I mean, it has to be food production and the industrial food, pet food production. Um, I wouldn't think, I mean, how much of it depends on the type of pet you have? Like if you have a goldfish, does it, does it make that much of a difference? Uh, you know, if you have a lion, maybe that's really expensive uh, carbon wise. I don't know. Yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I suppose the idea being, you know, similar to having a child, it's uh, uh, you've got a living being that has a lifespan of X years and the human that's whatever it is these days, 85, 90 in a, in a rich country um, and a pet, you know, you've got dogs that have a, a potential you know, life of, of 15 to 20 years uh, for, for certain breeds. So, yeah, I would imagine that that's that's probably where that's coming from. Okay, last I, question. Okay, sorry, I'm going to no. just continue. I'm a little bit interested on this pet topic. I've been looking up a little bit. It's true. Certainly, it is the, the diet of the pet. Uh, there's two interesting facts I found. One is that uh, a fifth of the world's meat and fish is eaten by pets. A fifth. Mm. But the other thing, which is kind of interesting, is that um, pets tend to eat food that contains a lot of sort of meat, uh, secondary quality cuts or uh, byproducts, that kind of stuff. Um, I mean, this is where it gets pretty gross, but I, essentially, you know, humans tend to choose these choice cuts of meat and then the left, leftovers go towards, you know, dogs and cats and horses and all this kind of stuff. And so, you know, you could make this sort of obscene convoluted argument that you need the pets there to take all this other meat away. Otherwise it would be like so-called wasted. So if you cared about food waste, maybe, you know, that would be an argument. I don't like that kind of argument because I, I think that it sort of just encourages continued consumption in the same way that we've been doing, but, but certainly interesting. And yeah, a fifth of all meat and fish in the world consumed by pets. It's quite a lot, isn't it? I could imagine also that the larger the pet, the larger the carbon footprint, right? Yeah, yeah totally. Right. Yeah. Like the Great Dane is eating a little bit more than the Chihuahua. Yeah. Yeah. I'm thinking about in my area now, there's a lot of horse stables. A lot of people have horses. And so I could just imagine the carbon footprint from a dog compared to a horse is, you know, is much bigger. But then horses don't tend to eat meat, do they, right? Like they, they'll eat hay and grass mm -hmm. and 
and vegetables and carrots, obviously, right? If you come and meet a horse, that's the thing to get, get them excited. Lots um, of carrots. So, so maybe the carbon impact of a horse is, is sort of less, but then of course they're going to be producing methane. Yeah. Um, interesting. This All is right. very interesting. We have to do a whole episode on this. Onwards, <laughs> onwards, onwards. Okay, onwards. Last question for both of you. Get ready to hit your buttons. Quick, Since, quick fire, quick fire round. Quick fire. Since okay. 1850, the WMO, the World Meteorological Organization, has collected annual global temperatures. Since 2015, how many years have been the warmest year on record? Four years, zero years, six years, i.e. every year since 2015, or one year? Four years. Four years. Four years. Okay. Let's see how truth you guys are. Incorrect. Oh. In our survey, only 4% of people correctly stated that that the six years since 2015 have been the warmest on record. All six. So, yep. Every year since. So, yeah, we're doing well. We're doing well. Congratulations, anyway. everyone. We did it. <laughs> Congratulations, global population. <laughs> Your perception of peril is poor. Um, anyway, so go check that out. Um, go to perils.ipsos.com uh, and you'll find a link to the quiz. But here's, uh, here's some other data that came out. So um, in, in the survey, uh, people ranked recycling. I'm, I'm going to go through the top three that, of, of what people perceived as what they could do uh, to uh, Im- improve their climate footprint or carbon footprint. Uh, recycling as much as possible was number one. Uh, 59% of people uh, chose that as their top, uh, top ranking uh, task. Um, buying energy only from renewable resources was number two, and replacing a typical car or, or an ice car, an internal combustion car with an EV or a hybrid. So that's one, two, and three. The actual rank of recycling is seven. The actual rank of buying energy uh, only from renewable sources is three, and the actual rank of buying an EV or hybrid is five. Uh, as we've talked about Number one, having one fewer child. Number two, not having a car at all. And number three is avoiding a long distance flight uh, lasting six hours or more. Um, So it it looks like the uh, actual and the perception are quite different, uh, at least in this survey. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think the recycling one is really interesting because it's like the most visible thing that we do often on a day-by-day basis but that makes us think about the environment. Like we think about the things that we're throwing in the, in the waste and, and that's such a thing that's so visceral, it's in our homes, you know? Um, and then I guess we think about energy in terms of buying energy from whatever source because it, we directly correlate, you know, energy usage with carbon footprint. Um, but yeah, it's interesting. And, and obviously that impact of, of flying being so huge and, I think that there was a lot of talk during, you know, the last 18 months of the pandemic um, about, sorry, it hasn't quite been 18 months, has it? It just feels like it. It's been just over a year. Um, There's been a lot of talk about, okay, will people's habits go back to normal when it comes to travel? And I think that, um, you know, certainly there's been a fair amount of 
uh, talk about people reducing business travel quite significantly, which I think is fantastic. But I also think that there's a lot of pent up demand now for uh, leisure travel. You know, people are sort of desperate to get out there. And so I'm really curious to see what happens with this over the next few years. And I'm, I'm certainly not that optimistic that the number of flights people take will, will dramatically reduce long term, because I think that even in the business sphere, the like arms race to compete with other businesses means that you know, if someone's willing to hop on a plane and pitch you as opposed to do it over Zoom, you know, that person is probably more likely to get the deal. And and so, you know, it's, it's probably not going to be as significant a drop as we think. But but yeah, I think this is sort of, um, you know, it, it is interesting how these perceptions come in. I, I think that there's also like, you know, one of the one of the slight issues with just measuring CO2 emissions is of course that there's these other externalities associated with all these other behaviors. You know, I, I personally think there's a quite a lot of externalities related to car use that are not are just never captured. I think that, you know, um, when you're driving a car, when you're piloting a vehicle as a human being, um, you know, your attention is hopefully occupied by that task. You're not a productive individual. Um, and it's sort of a, you know, it might seem like a really minor thing, but I remember as an experience living in Japan and, and watching everybody commute, you know, because pretty much everyone's commuting on a train uh, in a large city like Tokyo or something. And and actually, like, if you look at it as an economist, you, you can see all these people engaged in, you know, supposedly productive behaviors on the train. They're either buying things or they're reading or they're, you know, uh, doing some work or something like that. Um, whereas, you know, in the car, you're maybe consuming some kind of uh, information and listening to some ads and things like that, but that's about it. Um, and then of course, there's the danger of, you know, driving these big hunks of metal around and killing people and creating pollution for that. It's not even carbon emissions, just local pollution that affects the quality of life of everyone around you. And so um, it's, I think there probably is some kind of index somewhere where you combine CO2 emissions with like risk of death and, you know, negative stuff that you're creating. Uh, but this doesn't really capture that. But I think that, you know, of course, like it is, um, it's a little bit disappointing that public perception isn't quite in the right place here. Um, and, you know, obviously the most radical thing on this list is, you know, having one fewer child, which of course, you know, is, like one of the biggest life decisions you could ever make. And so I, I don't know how that even like really fits in with people's, um, you know, perception as, of how they should live their life. But it's, yeah, certainly kind of a fascinating view into how people, how people think out there. Yeah, I am really curious about why the difference between perception and actual, like, is it the lack of ad education or are there cultural influences in this? I know that in the Philippines, for example, they really emphasize recycling and waste management because they're very prideful about the beauty of their beaches and they wanna keep the water crystal clear. So they, they you know, gather as a community to manage waste really well because they wanna maintain that. But family is such a big, you know, big part of the culture as well that I don't think having one less child is ever in the conversation. So are there cultural influences that are changing this perception as well? Yeah, absolutely. And in, 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 a, in certain countries, not having a child is just like not even an economic choice for, and that anyone can take, you know? Um, so. I, I, I suppose that's the limits of, of studies like this, or, or maybe that's the purpose of studies like this is to have these types of conversations, right? Because 
you know, to take recycling alone to say, okay, that's the perception that everyone has, but the reality is it's a little bit different. It's also like, okay, well, do you, how do you compare that with, um, let's take plastics and the creation of virgin plastics and the use of that and the extraction of that, you know, so um, it does beg the question of, all right, you know, let's, I think we need to look at this in a little bit more detail in a little bit of, of context and yeah, as a single measure of CO2 emissions, recycling, is that, is that because recycling just happens to be really inefficient in the state of technology and we've just not hit a point yet? And why is that? Is it because of the forces of, of you know, the industry or such that uh, they're, they're being subsidized you know, to create virgin plastics? Or, you know, so these types of conversations and these types of questions uh, do need to be had when you're thinking about this data, I think. Um, and uh, it's good. It's good. I mean, overall, it's good. I think the study was really interesting. Um, I think that we're clearly off in how we're seeing things. The good thing is people um, do tend to be a lot more conscious of what's happening, uh, at least in certain parts of the world and maybe in certain sectors. Uh, here in the United States, everything's become a political issue. So, of course, this is, you know, whose side are you on on this? And, you know, are we going to go... Uh, have this culture war about it, but it's it's interesting also to to look at a survey of thirty countries um, and Ina, to your point, sort of the cultural implications of that and what uh, what how people think about it, um, you know, in Peru versus Japan. Okay, so uh, moving on um, to a bit of industry news. So GFI, the Good Food Institute, which we talked about their 2019 plant-based food report, uh, I think on the last one of these news podcasts, maybe almost a month ago now, um, but they just released the 2020 report. So if you go to gfi.org, you'll find it. Uh, so a couple of data points to share with everyone. The retail market for plant-based foods is now worth $7 billion, and that's up from $5.5 billion in 2019. Um, the, the other data point that I thought was really interesting is uh, between 2018 to 2020, plant-based food sales grew almost 2.5x faster than the total food sales, uh, so other food sales. So people are choosing plant-based foods over others, and maybe they're trying it, maybe there are converts. And to that point, the other point that was interesting too is in every category, whether it was milk, meat, um, uh, uh, cheese, eggs, in every category other than yogurt, <laughs> there were repeat buyers. So maybe plant-based yogurt's not that delicious. I don't know, Rob, do you have an <laughs> opinion on that? You know, I was looking at the ice cream because <laughs> in our household, I gotta say Van Leeuwen just keeps on releasing new ice cream mm -hmm. products. I think they have more vegan flavors now than regular ones, or it's the same. Mm -hmm. They've released these bars now, like sort of Magnum style ice cream bars. Oh my God. It's, it's, there's, it's moral hazard at every turn. <laughs> um, and also, you know, it's like, you can get it everywhere now as well from us. So, so like you can get it directly from them, like order it, you know, for, through Seamless or whatever. You can get it through the grocery store, like, They've really um, trounced, I, in my opinion, I have, think they have the by far the best ice cream product, uh, vegan ice cream product out there. Um, my experience of 
vegan yoga is somewhat limited. I was never really a yoga guy anyway. And so um, I certainly don't think there's some kind of like great market leader there. Um, but yeah, overall, this growth is pretty staggering across all these you know, markets. And um, I think it's, it's funny to compare that one year dollar growth compared to animal-based um, products. It's, it's 1.8 X, you know, it's a, it's a lot. And this is, you know, especially because this comes from the Good Food Institute, which I think, you know, is a great organization in general. I really like the approach. I think they're very practical. I think if anyone's interested in finding out more about them, there's a great podcast episode on the Sam Harris um, podcast just from a couple of weeks back um, where they talk about their approach. They're very pragmatic as an organization. They look at this in terms of how do we create the largest impact with the greatest number of people uh, they don't really care about like existing vegan people or existing vegetarian people. That's not their agenda. Um, they're trying to, you know, get people to invest in these technologies. They're trying to get governments to think about this and put this in terms of priorities. So, you know, one of the interesting points they made was that if you, if you could convince like, I don't know, less than 50 people in the Chinese um, party system at a senior level to take this stuff seriously, which I don't think even think they're very far away from, you know, you could affect the diets of a billion people. Um, and that's, that's just huge in terms of climate impact. It's huge in terms of the other externalities of animal agriculture. And so I think they're, they're pretty smart about trying to find the right levers to, to pull. I think that the other thing that's really interesting about these statistics is this doesn't even include anything yet to do with lab grown meat or cell, cell cellular based uh, meat. Um, I'm not using the right term there. Let's say lab-grown meat, um, because that you know is going to be coming onto the market in the next couple of years, and I think you're just going to see initially, obviously, lots of sort of different opinions about it. But I think it's going to take the world by storm. Um, and so, if I was the kind of person to invest money in startups, um, which I'm not, um, I would be trying to get in on the ground floor at many of these. Um, lab grown meat companies like Memphis Meats, but there's, you know, there's a bunch of others as well. So uh, last thing I want to say on this is I think given these numbers, you know, there's some cattlemen's associations, which are a great name, eh? It's very sort of, uh, but there's a lot of those in the US and around the world. I think there's, you know, and other uh, animal agriculture sort of lobbyists and that kind of thing. I think you're going to see a lot of obfuscation, confusion, like sort of fake news stuff coming out in the same way that the tobacco industry and in the same way that climate change deniers have wanted to do to kind of try to muddy the waters. I think, I think consumers are gonna be bombarded with that stuff over the next couple of years. At the same time, you know, some of those companies like Tyson's uh, have invested in alternative meat uh, products as well. And so I think it's gonna be really interesting to see all these different players and how they play out over the next uh, few years. But, but hopefully, you know, everyone involved can see that there's a lot of you know money to be made here there's a lot of consumer appetite for this stuff and it's finally reaching the scale where consumers can access it they can get excited about it um and that repeat rate of purchase you know among plant-based milk plant-based meat plant-based ice cream i know all about that tofu and tempeh cheese etc uh repeat rate is really high so people are really really happy with these products and, and i think that's just fantastic i'm really excited about it yeah, there was a really interesting data point um, on the Sam Harris podcast when when the team from GFI was on, 
And I can't remember the exact number. They said it was something like it takes eight or nine calories to make one calorie in the chicken. Um, and their point was that it's the most efficient of the general meats that we eat, so pork or beef. So I looked into that a little bit more. And um, here are a couple of data points, and I'd like to get your, your sort of reaction to this. So with ground beef, so your average 85%, 15% fat ground beef has a pound of ground beef has about uh, 1,137 calories in it. It takes 27,100 calories to make that pound of ground beef. And with pork, a, a pound of pork loin, which is a relatively lean cut, um, has 1,099 calories. And it takes 10,841 calories to make that. And that just seems incredibly inefficient um, as, as, as a means of any sort of production, right? Yeah, yeah. I mean, just biological food chains and like ecosystems are, they're all incredibly inefficient. If we were, if humans were just a part of the food chain, you know, hunter gatherers, the amount of energy that's transferred between each level of the food chain is only 10%. But then when you think about adding processing, you know, and packaging, it only just gets more and more inefficient. So, you know, that's a lot of the reason why I started eating more plant-based was because I just wanted to reduce the amount of energy consumption that my diet was taking. And it's just, it's really interesting to think about how there's so much energy required to just produce food. And so the, the ways that the industry is already adapting with plant-based foods, it just reduces all of that energy consumption as a whole. And then also water, like a pound of beef, roughly 1,500, 1,800 gallons of water for a pound of beef. A uh, pound of pork, around 500 gallons of water. Um, compare that to a pound of soybeans, it's a delicious meal, um, 216 gallons of water. So like a ninth of the amount for beef. So it's like not just you know, not just energy usage, it's also water, which is becoming a huge issue in this country. It's already already a huge issue in Australia, where I'm sort of from, um, you know, and water use has an impact on uh, so many things. And, you know, there's food equality, inequality related to water use as well. And so, yeah, this is huge. These are huge numbers. And so I think GFI, I, I really respect how they just, you know, they want to focus on things that have a lot of leverage. I just want to make a note about the Sam Harris podcast. He's a little bit of a slightly controversial figure. I enjoy some of his content. I do not enjoy other parts of his content. And so you may want to take it with like a slight pinch of salt sometimes. Um, just a note for the listener. Back to you, Michael. I know, were you going to say something? Yeah, I just wanted to share that we have a podcast episode about water we'll, that we'll link below. Be sure to check out that episode. Nice. All right. Uh, to some company news. So this is, uh, at least to me, kind of the holy grail of plant-based foods. So Alice Munro. Um, so let me just take a step back. This is an article that was on a blog. I think they're based out of Hong Kong called greenqueen.com. And the headline is Black woman-owned startup Atlas Monroe to be world's largest vegan fried chicken maker after turning down 
a million dollars on Shark Tank. Okay, so that's the clickbait headline and, and all of that. But here's the story. Alice Monroe um, runs a uh, facility in San Diego. They produce millions of pounds of uh, plant-based fried chicken, and they've become the largest game in town. They've topped over a couple of billion dollars in, in direct-to-consumer sales. They're starting to do ribs, turkey, bacon, and the like. Um, and along those lines, uh, there's a company based here in the U.S. called Atlast, and they recently raised $40 million uh, from a variety of investors, including the founders of Applegate and Stonyfield Organics, which I'm sure if you've been to the Whole Foods or any supermarket, you've seen those brands, where they're making bacon is their sort of pilot product out of mycelium, so the root structure of mushrooms. Um, and, uh, you know, the benefits of apparently using the mushrooms is a lot of that mouthfeel, which people go after and, uh, and, and all of that. Rob, what are your thoughts on all of this? Oh, this is a subject area that I love. Um, first of all, it's great to see, um, the growth of, you know, Atlas Monroe. It's, it's confusing, isn't it? Atlas Monroe. And then we've got at last food. So don't get them mixed up. Uh, if you go to Atlas Monroe's website, you can see all the kind of products that they have there, like fried chicken, there's some other sort of barbecue type products. Everything's sold out, which is like a sort of good sign. It feels very much like our situation right now where we're trying to build a new facility. Um, it's literally exactly the same situation in some ways. We're trying to build a, a 10,000 square foot facility. She's also doing that. Uh, all our products are basically sold out in terms of the greens. Um, but yeah, like for context, you know, 10,000 square feet, like for pe people who have trouble imagining that, it's a good size. It's like, it's the size of like 10 very large New York City apartments. Um, for context, Impossible Foods built a facility in Oakland, which is about 70,000 square feet. Um, so, you know, bit larger. Um, there's certainly maybe a larger sort of stage. But I think this is an awesome story for black entrepreneurs and, and uh, women entrepreneurs. And it's really, it's really interesting, the dynamics in the kind of vegan plus black culture space. And I think it'd be great to get someone more authoritative than me to speak on the podcast about it. But uh, for some little context, you know, Partake Foods is a cookie company out of uh, New York. They also raise money from celebrities like Jay-Z, Rihanna. There's a lot of sort of interest in the sort of uh, black cultural celebrity space in, the, in this kind of stuff, which is really interesting. And it's interesting if you look at the dynamics of culture overall in the US, um, you know, there's a 2015 poll by the Vegetarian Resource Group that found that 8% of black people were strictly vegetarian compared to about 3.4% overall. Um, and then if you look at a 2020 poll by Gallup, they found that 31% um, of non-white Americans had reduced their meat consumption in the past year compared to only 19% of white Americans. So that's kind of interesting in terms of that like diet change. Um, coming off this, you know, obviously the, the background data is that African-Americans have a higher rate in general of hypertension, type two diabetes, obesity and cancer than most other groups. And that's often because of like lack of access to healthy food. Um, and so there's sort of like historical reasons why, you know, black folks have not had access to, um, you know, the, the plethora of food choices that white folks have. And, you know, so there's this sort of um, interesting dynamic where that's changing and people are being able to have more power to control their diet. There's also this sort of, um, slight backlash against vegan culture sometimes in that it's often very whitewashed. It's like 
a skinny lady on a beach in LA eating vegan, you know, hanging out in Malibu kind of thing. And it's like that, that kind of imagery and that kind of culture is just not relevant to a lot of people. Um, and so you'll see, you know, backlash against that. And certainly that's kind of an, an interesting dynamic, but I, I think it's really great to see entrepreneurs sort of start up in this space. The, the last thing I want to say about this is like some of these food sometimes it's like it's vegan but it's not necessarily like a healthy food so it's like you know you're seeing fried chicken you've got uh these cookies you've got some other stuff so it's sort of like i think that one of the first places to get people interested in a plant-based diet may be some of these treat foods like how do i turn fried chicken into something that's a vegan dish but i i think always in the back of our minds we've got to make sure that it's part of like a, a diet that includes a lot of whole plant-based foods as well um so that's my that's my thought on uh, Atlas Monroe. I've got other thoughts about Atlas as well, but I'll I'll hand it back to you to you two to comment. It is really inc- I, I totally see what you're saying, Rob. Like it's really encouraging to see culturally relevant food that's vegan, because I think you know I've I've had that same experience where I've only seen I've seen a lot of you know smoothie bowls, but nothing that's from my culture, you know, that's vegan. And so I'm really excited to see more of this kind of culturally relevant food that's also environmentally conscious and, you know, food and health equity. It, it, it brings that whole, it, it brings the topic of food and health equity to the forefront because how can you provide food and health that's equitable across all different cultural backgrounds without making the food relatable to, you know, what, what is from, from your culture. So I'm really excited to see more of these kinds of companies, um, gain traction. Yeah. I think the, um, you know, human beings are, are, are funny creatures, right? It's like, I, I think I've made the point on an earlier podcast about impossible burgers, sort of like, you've got to find that entry point that excites people that sort of captures their imagination. And to your point earlier, Rob, about lab grown meat, I mean, I, I kind of look forward to the day when we're experimenting, when, when we have these inventors and creators and entrepreneurs who are experimenting with these protein structures and coming up with things that we've just not had before. You know that are blending flavors that we've maybe not seen before or tasted before. That to me is interesting and exciting about all of this too. It's you know it's it's sort of like it's things that we couldn't have imagined because they weren't possible before this. And you know I hope that we're we're in my lifetime that we'll be we'll be at that point because I I think that's where things get interesting. All that being said, bacon's delicious. Um, to me, as is uh, uh, as are ribs and fried chicken. So, well, let's talk about bacon then. <laughs> um, the mushroom bacon is, you know, the sort of key product from Atlas Food Co., who raised this forty million dollars, including from Robert Downey Jr.'s Footprint Coalition Ventures. Sounds like a really interesting uh, investor there. Um, I really want to try this mushroom bacon. I'm very curious about it. It's produced by growing very large slabs of mycelium. Uh, which is the mushroom uh, sort of main part, not the fruiting body, um, in beds up to 100 feet long and 10 to 20 feet wide, apparently. Um, right. And it grows on white button mushroom farms. So it's a great example of sort of this, you know, symbiosis of, 
of making another food product out of something that was previous un, unused. I love that. Um, and, and they think obviously because of this technique, they can grow it on a very large scale, which is one of the problems sometimes with some of these processes is they're, they're hard to scale. So that's, that's pretty great. And I, and they're trying to get this price to be competitive with conventional pork belly. So pork belly, you know, and pork belly trading is this sort of whole side of American culture that a lot of people don't get a lot of contact with. Um, to, for reference, about um, every pig has about 35 pounds of pork belly on it. A normal pig that or normal hog market weight is about 250 pounds. Okay, so imagine a pig, it normally weighs about 250 pounds when it's sold and about 35 pounds of that is pork belly, which turns into bacon, obviously. So the equivalent is, you know, if you sold about, um, well, each, each of these mushroom bacon packs that they've sold so far at retail has been about six ounces. So if you, if you sold about a hundred packs of the mushroom bacon, uh, 600 ounces or so, that's about one pig's worth, you know? Um, and the pig in, you know, even, and I do care about pigs, so I do care about that side of things. But if you, even if you don't care about the actual pig and its welfare, um, the pig is obviously producing carbon emissions. It's like that pet that you chose not to have. Um, like that, that pig is producing farts and burps and, and methane. And, and obviously, you know, you've got to also manage the manure from that pig. So, um, you know, just a hundred packs of bacon, one pig, like a whole lifespan of that pig's carbon emission. Um, that's a lot. You know, of course, there's other products that the pig, you know, uh, produces that's other meat cuts and all that kind of stuff. But you can see how a relatively manageable, understandable amount of plant-based meat alternative being purchased can actually have, you know, quite a significant consequence. And so, um, yeah, I'm mainly really excited about this. I hope it tastes amazing. Um, it sounds good. You know, I've tried a few uh, vegan bacon products. I've not been super excited about them. A lot of them are made out of... Uh, what do you call it? Uh, wheat and seitan and stuff like that, which is, it's fine, but it never got me that excited. So excited for at last and, and uh, excited for the future of this kind of food. Yeah, so check them out, uh, Atlas Monroe and at last. So last bit of company news, Oishi, uh, that makes the strawberries in, Oishi. in New Jersey. You gotta say Oishi, 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 Oishi. Oishi, sorry, Japanese people, for my offensive take on your language. Uh, uh -huh. They're launching an everyday berry. So this is huge because their current range of berries are a bit expensive, at least compared to what you see uh, at, at the markets here in the US. Um, but taking the technology that they developed uh, for their omakase berry, did I say that wrong? Omakase. Um, oh, okay. Uh, what he said. <laughs> I'm going to um, stop. I'm <laughs> Uh, and and they're gonna uh, go down market, so to speak, with their everyday berry. So, Rob, what do, what are your thoughts on this? My first thought is oishi berries are delicious, and I love them, and I've been lucky enough to have them a couple of times. But you you guys haven't had them yet, right? No, shaking of the head. I will I've make not. sure somehow that we get some to you uh, because they are very very delicious. I had one. Uh, I want to say about a month ago. Um, after a dinner that we cooked for a couple of friends. And I was feeling particularly good that day, but that was like an amazing strawberry that really like made my night. I'm, I was just blown away by it. So they're delicious. I think that um, the context here for everybody is 
you know, growing fragile, perishable products like a strawberry, um, if you grow that product locally, you eliminate a lot of the transport risk, uh, a lot of the emissions associated with transport as well. But that transport logistics of a strawberry is really difficult. Strawberries in particular, they're very sensitive to temperature change. They're very sensitive to mishandling. Um, and so what happens is you'll get, you know, someone carefully picking a strawberry in California ends up in a um, container, ends up in a pallet, ends up on a truck. Um, that pallet may go through temperature fluctuations. Um, it may get mishandled. Uh, one of the things I learned from Benjamin Law about the secret life of groceries was that a lot of the risks in logistics are related to what's called lumping, which is getting the pallet off the back of the truck into the warehouse. It's sort of this thing that we don't really think about that much, but truck drivers don't want to do that bit because it's dangerous. It's very high risk of injury in doing that. It tends to be very low paid and risky labor. Um, and so that's, you know, when you think about the product, lumping and, and that kind of activity is where a lot of that damage may occur. And, and we all know from experience, if a strawberry gets damaged, um, gets a little bit mushy, it's going to start to mold. And then that's going to infect all the strawberries in that pack. And then you've lost a pack of strawberries or the consumer experience has been heavily impacted. And so there's a lot of initiatives right now going on in the logistics industry to try to track the temperature in a very, very specific way, like within a pallet, right? Imagine sensors in multiple points in a pallet, because if you know that the temperature has gone above a certain level, it actually is going to impact the shelf life of that strawberry dramatically, such that one picked on the same day may have a completely different shelf life to the same another one picked on the same day if they've been handled differently. Um, and so I think that overall, that's why, you know, a company like Oishi is really interesting because they're trying to eliminate a lot of those risks. But also, um, you know, they obviously know how to grow a really tasty product uh, right now. My guess is that their everyday berry may be a little bit closer in texture um, to like a standard US berry. Um, but, but, but hopefully, it'll be just as tasty as their existing one. And I really love the bold statement that they wanna be the world's biggest strawberry grower. Um, I think it's time for disruption in that market. And, and so I think they're coming out of the gate with an awesome product and I really, um, yeah, but if you success. take a store-bought strawberry. Yeah, I'm I'm really excited about these berries also. I've definitely had the experience where I've bought a strawberry from the grocery store and there was completely no taste. And that's because it's just the, it's probably came from California and traveled way too far for it to maintain its flavor. So I'm really excited about trying these and I'm hoping that that day I can try Oishi, the Omasaki berry, come soon. Omakase. 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 I can't even say it anymore. <laughs> Sorry, okay. Go, Michael. Oh, I was just going to say that if you take a tasteless store-bought strawberry and put a bunch of uh, whipped cream and sugar on it, it's fine. All right. That's it for news. Thank you, guys. Okay. <laughs> Thank you all so much for tuning in to these, this week's episode of the Farm One Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to stay tuned on the upcoming episodes for Earth Month. If you subscribe to our newsletter at our website, farm.one, you'll get a notification each time we share a new episode. Next week, we'll be sharing the episode with Benjamin Moore to uncover the secrets of grocery stores. Lots of exciting podcast guests coming up that will leave you being more thoughtful about your food.
Thank you and see you next time. Thank you. I won Thanks. the pie contest. Bye. Bye. <laughs> Bye. Bye.